everyone and welcome to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film Jaws, minute by minute or thereabouts. I'm Sarah Buddery. And I'm MJ Smith. And this week we are joined by a guest. Um, uh, please welcome Rob Daniel to the show. Rob, how's it going? It's going very well. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, before we get started, we have the Jaws question um, that everyone has to answer before they're allowed to uh, record about this minute of Jaws that they're booked on, um, which is what is what is your personal history with Jaws? Like, what is it that drove you to ending up saying, "Hey, I would like to guest on this kooky idea for a podcast"? Well, <clears throat> there's a couple of points to this. So the first is that I'm the same age as Jaws, and mm. I've always liked that fact. Now, I like it less each year because Jaws is aging <laughs> much better than I am. But uh, yes, in 1975, this wonderful thing came out that would bring joy to millions for decades to come. And uh, Jaws was also released as well. So <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and, but a couple of episodes ago, uh, MJ, you said that everyone's Jaws origin story tends to fit the same mold. <clears throat> uh -huh. Uh, that you first watch it at an early age and then you revisit it as a teen and realize uh -huh. it's one of the great movies and that's exactly what happened with me <laughs> so my jaws story first begins on wednesday the 29th of july 1981 which was the day that <laughs> prince charles and lady diana got married and that was a national holiday and in our street we had a street party and in the evening we all went to a neighbor's house and we were all in the front room watching clips from the wedding on the TV and it was ITV so it went to an ad break and the first ad that came up was films coming to ITV this autumn and the first shot was of Chrissy running into the water and the room just went absolutely electric like all the adults were like Jaws 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 is going to be on telly Jaws is going to be on telly <laughs> and all the kids were like what's going on what's going on why is everyone so excited and my mum said, oh, there's this film called Jaws and it's really good and it's, it's really scary and it's about a shark and it's going to be on telly. So <laughs> that was great. And it was like, okay, right. So is it going to be on telly like at the weekend? And mum said, no, it's going to be probably September or October. It's like, well, it's July now. So that might as well be never because that's so far away. <laughs> but over the months, I just remember the excitement really building and the day... The Jaws was on, which I think was Thursday the 8th of October. The entire class of six-year-olds, of which I was one, was, watch uh, was all talking about the fact that Jaws was going to be on that night. And even the teacher at the end of the day said, are we all going to watch Jaws tonight? <laughs> and it was like, yes, we're all going to watch Jaws tonight. It was such a big deal. Everyone was massively excited for it. Um, and I was listening to the episode with Darren Wad um, Wadsworth, and mm -hmm, he yeah. was talking about the, the quandary that he had 
when his TV broke the day that Jaws was going to be on telly. Yep. And they had to go <laughs> to his nan's house to watch it. That just really brought back to me just the way that that sort of thing would happen during the 80s because in the 1980s, TVs were rubbish. I mean, I remember our TV, you would hear the sound for two or three minutes until the tube warmed up and then you would get a picture. So that was like <laughs> a real um, risk that you might not be able to watch Jaws. But luckily it worked. And yeah, it was just like immediately brilliant. I so distinctly remember three things from that first showing. One being the shark coming up out of the water, another being Hooper in the cage, and then Quint gargling mm. the blood at the end. And that just really stuck with me and just set me on a lifelong love of horror movies. So I've got a lot to thank for, um, or a lot to thank Jules for, because there are just so many genres in this film that it covers a lot of bases, and it blew my six-year-old mind. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yes, that was... Um, and then I think the next time it was on was Easter of 84 and we could record it at that point because we had a video recorder and I then, yeah, was watching Jaws a lot because we had it on video. It was that and Star Wars. It was just absolutely amazing uh -huh. to own these films. Mm. Um, and then I think, as most people do, you then go through a period where you have watched Jaws enough, if such a thing is possible, and <laughs> then you revisit it as a teen. And I remember, and I think... Not to sound creepy, but I think it was the Sunday before Christmas in, in 1989. It was on BBC Two at 7.15. And I just remember watching it that night. And it was a completely different film to how I remembered it as a kid. Because uh -huh. in the intervening years, I had developed a sense of empathy. So, therefore, I remember watching the opening and thinking, she is in absolute agony and is absolutely terrified. This is so much more terrifying than I remember it from when I was a kid, when it was just this amazing adventure movie. And yeah, the film was like, the characters seemed richer, the stakes were much higher, I could appreciate the filmmaking more. And yeah, so from that point it was like, okay, this is clearly the second best film ever made, right? And I still think that. <laughs> <laughs> behind what? Uh, behind Jaws 2. Oh, just, okay. just, oh. just no, 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 no. Oh no, that was a joke that felt really bad. Um, <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was, I was yes-handing your joke. I did not believe you for a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did. I'm stupid. <laughs> no, there's a Lindsay Anderson film called If, and If I think is the greatest movie ever made. Jaws is a very close second, and if I'm completely honest, Jaws is the one that I watch more. If with um, uh, Malcolm McDowell? That's right, yeah. Yeah, okay. I have not seen it, but I see the cover of it every time there's a Criterion sale. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's a very good Criterion disc. <laughs> um, yeah, I will have to add it to the list. Uh, it's... It, I, I don't know if I've said this before on the show, but this is not the first time I will bring this film up on this episode. I think it's interesting that um, Steven Spielberg has kind of done this twice in his career, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, there's, like I said, it, it follows that formula almost to a T of watching it as a kid loving it for the spectacle and then watching it as an adult and loving it for the kind of human drama at play 
and also the spectacle. Mm-hmm. And it, Spielberg did that with Jurassic Park too, mm-hmm. because I think for you know uh, millennials, that's a very similar uh, experience where you watch Jurassic Park as a kid and you love it because you love dinosaurs and dinosaurs are cool and the movie looks great. And then you watch it as a teenager or adult and you're like, this is scary. <laughs> this is a really <laughs> scary, intense movie, actually. Um, so it's just, it's it's wild to think that, you know, this is someone who's been able to do this multiple times in his career when any director would kill to do it once ever <laughs> at any point in their career. Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend um, who I used to work with and Jurassic Park is her favourite film. And she's younger than I am. I think she was in her late 20s at this point. And talked about Jurassic Park the way that I talked about Jaws. It was, yeah, exactly as uh-huh. you just said. It was the exact same thing of that journey she'd been on with this movie. And mm. it was like, yeah. She hadn't seen Jaws at that point. So it was like, okay, well, now you need to see oh. Jaws. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jurassic Park's wonderful. Yeah, I'm not going to get in, into the whole thing with her of like, kind of... Uh, Jaws is better because, of course, it's the one that you see when you're a kid is is what imprints on you most. But Jaws is better. <laughs> I love Jurassic Park. They um they actually play really well as a as a double bill, and I've I've seen them. Um, the Prince Charles Cinema in London frequently does like a double bill of Jaws and Jurassic Park, uh-huh. um, and it's uh, that particular double bill is special to me because it was one of the the first dates that me and me and Martin went on. As Jaws is my favourite film and Jurassic Park is his favourite film, so it was like <laughs> wow. tailor made for us. Um, but also just seeing seeing those two films back to back and seeing the similarities but also seeing the progression like what Spielberg could do when he did actually have kind of better functioning special effects but still using some of the animatronic stuff that that he used in Jaws and just seeing these two sort of um cultural touch points I guess um that are you ask a lot of movie fans and there's a high chance that one of these films if not their favourite film, is going to be very, very high uh, in their rankings. I think particularly film fans of a certain age. So just mm-hmm. watching the two together is just a really, really good experience. I I mean, anyone can just do this at home and just watch Jaws and then immediately follow it with uh, Jurassic Park. But yeah, would recommend <laughs> watching the two together. It's a, it's a fun time. That sounds like a great double bill. It's, it's also, um, mm-hmm. the T-Rex is... Yeah, a direct descendant of the mechanical shark from Jaws because they, of Absolutely. course, had yeah, animatronic. So there is just a really nice lineage in terms of the special effects there and the way that Spielberg uses both of them. Because, of course, he has mm-hmm. this amazing T-Rex that works really well, but he doesn't show it all immediately. He knows that you have to hide it to, to build the suspense. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. On that note, uh, <laughs> let's talk about this scene, which the timestamp is on this sheet somewhere. Uh, it is an hour and 21 minutes and 30 seconds through an hour and 22 minutes and 33 seconds. And this is just after uh, you're going to need a bigger boat. Um, so, so the line gets said. Uh, you know, Brody bogarts his way through that with the cigarette flipping up and down in his mouth. <laughs> and uh, Quint hops into action. He he pops out of the, the cabin um, onto the, 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 the back half of the boat. And we see 
the sh- the fin of the shark and the top part of its body kind of cutting and gliding through the water. Hooper now understands what's going on. He's looking out into the water as well. All three of them are just hyper-focused on this shark right now. And um, uh, Brody does a reprise of his, uh, of his line. <laughs> he, he looks at... Uh, at Quinn and says, "Hey, we're gonna need we're gonna need a bigger boat, right?" And uh, Quint tells him, "No, that they need to get to work." Um, in the meantime, Hooper sees the shark for the first time and really understands kind of what they're dealing with, and says it's a twenty foot shark. And Quint uh, takes the opportunity to correct him that it's a twenty five foot shark <laughs> that's at least uh, three tons or six thousand pounds, which is wild to think about. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's such a big shark. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, Brody or, uh, Quint hops back in the cabin to go grab something. And Brody is once again, kind of out of his depth, pun intended in, uh, in this, just asking anyone who will listen what we need to do to deal with this 6,000 pound shark. Um, <laughs> And that's kind of where the scene ends. The scene ends with Brody asking Quint, like, what are we going to do about this? And then Quint doesn't say anything. So he switches to Hooper and goes, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> uh, but what did you guys notice uh, about this scene, um, watching it in isolation like this? Rob, we'll start with you. I'll have to admit, when I saw that you'd given me this scene, I was thrilled because it's just one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Um, So this is, and it also features, I think, one of the best shots in all of Jaws. Um, So this is kind of the beginning of the end of the film because apart from the Indianapolis speech, everything here is is a climax. It's, It's the men, it's the three characters against the shark. And in one minute, the film just sets out its stall for what's gonna come afterwards. So in this clip, we see the size of the shark and we realize, um, as you said, Sarah, on the last episode, that uh, the Brody is absolutely right that (laughs) that they're gonna need a bigger boat. Um, And Spielberg knows this is the moment to just show what they're up against. And it's also the moment where the characters realize they are not completely, that, that they're not completely prepared for what they're up against. And I love that moment when Quint first steps back out onto the deck and sees the shark approaching and he's literally stopped in his tracks which takes away some of our safety net as the audience because in the dynamic up until now quint has kind of been the dad but now the shark is saying that he's the daddy and (laughs) he's going to be the one that calls the shots from now on which gives the shark something of a mythical dimension i think Um, and that's what the struggle becomes going forwards and I think the piece of music that plays, which is also one of my favorite John Williams compositions, uh, that plays over this scene is called Man Against Beast. And mm-hmm. so there's so much stuff in this one minute-ish of the film um, that really shows once again, Spielberg's mastery of cinema as a way to tell a story. And there are just some of the shots and the way the shots intercut that we could talk about are just absolutely amazing. And there's just one other thing before I stop talking, and I know and you will have to stop me from talking, I'm afraid. But <laughs> um, Darren Wadsworth on that previous episode made a great point about the class distinction between Hooper and Quint, and that for mm. sharks, 
and that for Hooper, sharks are a source of inspiration and an opportunity for him to improve his intellect. But for Quint, there is livelihood, and it's, it's the hard job he's found himself doing because of his class. There's obviously there's a personal reason there for Quint as well, but I really like that insight. And in this scene, Hooper and Quint do revert to their class. So Hooper is rushing about and tells Martin, yeah, go up front, Martin, I need you. But as a spoiler alert, we find out that the reason he needs him is to give the photographs he's going to take some scale. And he's presumably taken the pictures for a scientific journal. Mm. And But for Quint, as you said, MJ, Quint is just yeah, deep in thought and saying, we've got to get to work, we've got to get to work. And for him, it's the mm. job. And there's just, oh, there's just so much happening in this wonderful scene. <laughs> there, you learn so much, I think, about the, the characters um, and particularly what the characters think and feel about the shark uh, in this scene. And I don't write about Jaws that often, but when I do write about it, my favourite thing to write about, apart from how wonderful the shark looks and why it is perfect in every way, <laughs> Um, is the the three characters and what they represent, um, both in terms of the the, the different ideas of, of masculinity that they mm-hmm. that they very obviously represent, but also um, how their sort of the way they are seen in the film is gives a very clear indication of of why they are going on this mission and how they feel about the shark as well. And we see it all like boiled down in this scene. And I've I've never really realised how clearly we see it like just in this moment. And obviously, just watching this bit on its own, I'm like, oh yeah, there is that all the things that I have written about this character dynamic and what these characters think about the sharks is is in this scene because. Uh, in in Quint, after that initial moment of him being like frozen to the spot because he is finally seeing this this beast in front of him, um, he is determined. He is uh, ferocious. He is focused um, so clearly on the task at hand that I don't even think he is listening to Brody. He has tuned him out completely uh yeah. and i love the fact that he says you've got to get to work like <laughs> he is just and the the bit where it cuts off actually and this will be in next week's scene the thing that he goes into the the cabin to get is is his tools is the you know the harpoons and the hooks and the things that he is going to need to try and uh land a shot in in this shark um Brody in this scene, obviously we know he has a fear of the water. Uh, we saw him being startled by the shark in last week's scene. Uh, so what he represents in this scene is a real helplessness and a fear. You can see it in his eyes, but you also get it in how much he repeats himself in this scene. Like not only does he repeat the line, the you're going to need a bigger boat, um, he is like he asks i believe first quinn and then hooper but asks them the same question is just like um what does he say how how do we handle this i think um yeah. Yeah. so he is saying like the same thing over and over again cuz he just he is helpless in this moment he has no idea what to do um and hooper we see his face when he first sees the shark or sees the shark coming towards them and it is not fear it is not the same sort of uh laser focus that quint has or the the helplessness of brody he is awestruck like that is the thing that you you get from his face or i got from his face anyway and he cannot get off of the top of that boat quick enough i i love the way he like whizzes down the <laughs> down the 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 ladder or from the top of the boat you get a great sort of sound of the the ropes and stuff as well which uh I really enjoy but yeah and he is you know rushing 
to get his camera as you said it's that it's it's that difference between these two characters like quint is you know gotta get to work gotta get my tools gotta take down this shark and hooper is like that is the biggest dang shark i have ever seen with my two eyes i am gonna take a picture of of this of this shark um we get even more of that like hooper's love for the shark in the in the next scene when he is trying to get this picture and uh, sort of the words he uses as well, like talking about the shark and describing the shark, are so very, very different to how Quint talks about it. But yeah, I, I love, 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 love this scene. There's so much good stuff in it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I feel a bit smooth-brained in that it's not that I didn't pick up on the wonderful points you guys made. It's that my default in this scene is shark big. <laughs> shark because go chomp. Shark go chomp. <laughs> And shark big. Uh, because watching this scene, that's that's what I think about every time this shot happens. Is like, you see it and you see the shark from a distance. And you kind of see when it first kind of glides along the boat. And you're like, oh, okay. And then you see it next to the length of the boat. And you're like, oh, that's a big fucking shark. <laughs> um <laughs> And it, it, you know, I think the, the, the other thing too is, uh, I'm writing this. Okay. I'm, that I'm not writing. I'm technically writing a screenplay, but I'm doing it for a class because I'm in a screenplay class, a screenplay writing class. And one of the things you learn about is how to lie to people, right? Like the, the, if you're writing a, a screenplay, you're, you're lying, you're lying. <laughs> and so the first question in the class that was presented to us was what makes a convincing lie? And I had to think about that. And I was reminded of, and go go with me on this because it's a bit of a weird comparison. You guys remember in Reservoir Dogs when uh, Tim Roth has to memorize that joke or the, the story about him going into the bathroom and the four cops are there with the drug dog? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in that, I think it's, it's like one of the best... Uh, uh, depictions of like making a convincing lie that I've ever seen because the details have to be absolutely right. Like there has to be a shade of truth in all of it or else it's not going to, people are going to be like, that's too fantastical, right? Like you, it's not, it's just not going to work. People aren't going to buy into it or suspend their disbelief, even if they don't know they're suspending their disbelief. So in this, you think, okay, 6,000 pounds is a lot for a shark to weigh uh, because I don't really think of sharks weighing like six six thousand pounds or like you know what is that like close to three thousand kilograms right or twenty five hundred? Yeah, that's that's yeah. right, just under yeah. three thousand. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So I looked it up, and sharks can weigh between fifteen hundred and four thousand pounds, or between six eighty and uh, eighteen hundred kilograms. Um, but they there are documented cases of them weighing about 5,000 pounds. So, uh, it's, there's, there's enough truth in there to where you can be like, you know, I, I obviously don't know that off the top of my head, but hearing that line in isolation, I was like, that seems really big. Is that like, is that too much? And then you look it up and you're like, ah, it's, it's, it's exaggerated for a movie, but it's not, you know, it wouldn't be absolutely, you know, buck wild if, you heard about that in the in in real life of mm -hmm. of a shark weighing that much. So I think it's just a testament to the the screenplay of the film of just like 
they did their research. You know, they took the time to care about it, and then they exaggerated the parts that need to be exaggerated to make a convincing film. And uh, not just a convincing one, but also an entertaining one, because you want to, you know, you by and large, I think you want to make an entertaining uh, movie if you're in that business. So, um, you know, I, I do think that, yes, the initial thing is like, oh, that's a, that's a big shark. Uh, but then realizing that, like, oh, it's not insanely big, though, right? It's not Megalodon. Uh, um... <laughs> well, that's a really good point. I think that, um, and again, it's that thing about believability that I think Benchley himself talked about, about the ending and Steven Spielberg saying, look, I know that the ending wouldn't happen because a shark would spit out the canister, but it's all about believability. And mm. I think to your point, MJV, because uh, Steven Spielberg's probably going to listen to this at some point, or at yeah, least one of his so. people <laughs> is going to listen to this at some point and see, yeah, and suggest some episodes to him. And I think if he was to listen to this one, he would say, yeah, thank you. That's exactly what I wanted from that moment. Sharp big. <laughs> I wanted <laughs> the audience to be stunned at just how big this is and to share the character's awe, because it is awe, um, particularly from Hooper. Um, yes, particularly from Hooper, but it's also fear. And that's just a, an amazing moment. And to your point, Sarah, about the fact that the shark looks great. The shark looks great. I'm sorry, but there is <laughs> no argument there. The shark looks great, particularly for the time, but even now. Yeah. And I took some friends to the Prince Charles to see Jaws on a 4th of July screening a few years ago, and they hadn't seen nice. it before. And all of them said, that shark looks all right. I thought it was going to look silly. I thought this was the one that had the silly shark in it. And it's like, no, that's the thing is that the shark in Jaws has always looked good. And it mm -hmm. does look amazing as it goes by. But I think one of the things that, and it's just one of the brilliant moments of filmmaking and also is, is just a testament to the filmmakers in terms of not making it easy for themselves, is that the shark approaches from quite a distance away. It's about 30 or 40 feet. And... You can imagine audiences at the time thinking that, well, they must have wrangled a real shark to do that because how did they achieve it? And of course, they just laid out lots of track. But the idea of doing that and to have it approach from that distance because it gives you the scale and it also allows to register the character's faces as it's approaching. So you have that time as well. It's like, yeah, this is not a film where they made it easy on themselves. But by doing that, they have these amazing moments. And one of them is Shark Big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always, always delighted when someone is ready to sing the praises of, of this shark with me uh, because it is my favourite thing to talk about in Jaws, I think one of them anyway. Uh, you, you cannot tell me that the shark doesn't look good uh, in this moment. I think... In terms of just getting the sheer scale of it as well, this moment in the film is flawless to me. Mm -hmm. I there yeah. are you see the the beauty of this uh, mechanical shark that they were able to to use is it is used at exactly the right moments. It is used for exactly the right amount of time, and you see enough of it at the moments that you that you need to see it if that makes sense like the the shark's face popping up behind 
Brody has to happen. It's so much more effective than just the fin gliding pass because it has to be that big kind of like shocking moment of like, oh my gosh, there is the actual shark jaws like there it is <laughs> there it it's is a it's, it's a jaws, it's a jaws. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and that that is effective for that moment but in in this bit it's all about seeing the sheer size of of the shark shark big it is confirmed in the in this scene and <laughs> i absolutely adore that shot of the the shark um, sort of swimming around the orca and it sort of shoots it from from above but not as high up as we were in the in the previous scene because Quint is now down down on the deck he's not up in the crow's nest but the the sort of sweeping camera movements as well in that are so good and I think that it's uh, incredibly effective as well that we don't sort of we never really get like a clear shot of the of the shark in this in this bit. Um, we we get the fin, <laughs> we get the fin coming in the distance, uh, sort of approaching the the boat, um, and then we see it sort of next to the boat. But there's always something in the way. It's whether you know one of the characters or a bit of the mast or some rope or something um, is obscuring our view. So the effect that that sort of creates as well is that sense of us as the audience try like straining trying to to see the shark and we are uh, you know we're just looking at this one minute but into the film we're an hour and you know hour 20 minutes into this thing and we're really only now just getting our first really really good glimpse uh of this shark and seeing a lot of it as well so this sense of of still even at this point hiding some of the shark behind the boat or under the water or only seeing bits of it as and when we need to is incredibly effective in just creating that tension and and building up that tension for the audience as well because we're sort of like where is that shark going what's it going to do next uh <laughs> how big is this thing like it's there's so much at play in this in this scene and i just yeah. ugh, this shark looks so excellent i think particularly in this bit i i will not accept anyone saying that the the shark in jaws looks fake because like i always said my argument is you know well it was 1975 and i truly would love to see you do better uh with you know the 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 budget and everything that jaws had and and at the time as well and i maintain that it looks better than a lot of the cgi sharks they put in films now because you get that sense of scale of this being like a real big tangible thing just like cutting through the water and particularly in this bit getting that getting that sense of scale as brody and quint have honestly never looked smaller as they have in that mm. sort of like overhead shot of the yeah. of the shark next to the yeah. boat and them stood out in the back they look absolutely tiny um and it's just it's just brilliant. I the the music in this scene as well is just so good, and it's. I tried to track back and think about the last time we really properly heard the the shark score, and I guess it was when. Uh, I guess the pond when the, the shark pond. was in the pond. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. So it's been it's been a little while since we've since we've heard it, and we've had some red herrings since since then as well. So it is. I think deliberately jarring that the the score is so bombastic in this scene because it is taken us straight to that like oh no <laughs> feeling that we had so much of in the in the first half it's kind of like it is just these three guys and the shark now and this is it and things are about to get you know 
it's about to hit the fan. <laughs> yeah, just really to agree with that. I, and it is the cliche to say, well, CGI wouldn't look as good, but it's like, yeah, but it really wouldn't look as good. That <laughs> moment when Quint just puts his hands on the side of the boat so he can lean to watch the shark go by. It's like, mm-hmm. and the way the shark is moving and, and the fact that it's clearly there, there's such a tactile nature to it, to, yeah. to being like an actual physical thing that was there in the ocean and gliding by the boat. Yeah, it is just one of the great shots of the entire movie. Um, it's so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the way the actors sell this scale too i assume they were all impressed that the shark even worked for the shot but uh you know i I dropped a uh a screenshot in the discord of the 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 different expressions of shark big that uh brody and quint have but it's great that you know shark big is the sort of the, the 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 theme i guess that we're going with for this <laughs> for this episode but the way the the three men embody the different reactions they have to shark big like you said it's awe on all three of them it's awe but with hooper it's like oh shark big like I, this is my big moment with quint it's like shark big this is gonna be rough like we gotta get to work and with brody it's just like oh shit shark big. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing i love about that is that it really ties in. I really enjoyed over the past couple of episodes of you guys talking about Brody going through his really awkward adolescent stage and he's just a bit moody and he doesn't want to do his chores and that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, that absolutely tracks. What I love about this is that he is infantilized because mm-hmm. he becomes the audience anchor in terms of he acts exactly yeah, how, well, I would act. Yeah. I would become like a child. I would not be afraid to show how scared I am. And he mm-hmm. just basically starts to panic and says, how do we handle this? How do we handle this? <laughs> and it's like, you're the chief of police who has all this power, but in this moment, you are literally infantilized because you're so scared. And mm-hmm. yeah, I completely buy that. And it's such a great, vulnerable performance from Roy Scheider in that shot that we're looking at now of him just looking out there and also the bit when he sees the shark in the water and bolts upright, but also just in that line delivery of how do we handle this? How do we handle this? He's like just this <laughs> nagging little toddler <laughs> mm, and, mm-hmm. and the grown ups are kind of having to do the work and it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, I am going to say so brilliant a lot. You might have to cut some of them out. <laughs> It's uh, it's all true though, and that's it. That's a really, really good point as well. And I think has been one of my favourite things to explore about Brody in this latter half. And as well, it is uh, completely putting aside that argument that a lot of people have that Brody just doesn't do much in the second half of the film because he goes through like you know childhood, uh, puberty, adolescence, adulthood in the film. So you cannot tell me that he doesn't do anything in the back half of the film. It's just Absolutely. different. It's a different Brody. It's he has sort of gone gone back to that that childlike state and I he really, really sells it in in this scene and um I it it's very hashtag relatable content for me mm-hmm. in this because I would be Brody in this scene and just like looking to guidance from Big Daddy Quint to help me out. Yeah. Um because he is just like running around the boat, just like, what do we do? What do we do? We can get a bigger boat. How do we handle this? Like, how do we handle this? What is happening? I don't know what to do. Um and the speed at which the other two sort of 
go to their to their duties as well like they know exactly what to do and also there is no uh for a man who has has spent most of this boat journey so far barking orders at hooper or brody um they don't talk to each other like quint is not like hooper get this hooper do that hooper turn the boat around or whatever he is just like let me get my tools i'm about to like go you know toe to toe with this with this shark um and hooper is obviously just i think (laughs) caught up in the excitement of it all as well but they are kind of those two hooper and and quint are sort of working around each other they sort of brush past each other in the in the cabin not even looking at each other they're just so focused on the task at hand and and brody is this sort of like headless chicken in the middle just really really unsure of himself and uh not quite knowing what to do with himself and, and really i think over the next few scenes kind of having to 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 grow up quick and put on his his big boy pants and and learn to sort of find <laughs> his place in this in this crew because the others know what they are doing so effortlessly and so easily that it is it's just taking him that bit longer because he is so completely out of his comfort zone he is far from the shore at this point and it has never been more noticeable <laughs> Yeah. Also, headless chicken is a delicacy to the shark. So, yeah, that's right. (laughs) A tasty snack, uh, as is Roy Scheider. (laughs) Well, the way that the headless chicken would dance around in the mouth is really quite sublime. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the headless chicken has such a unique mouthfeel to the great white. (laughs) (laughs) It's got great, great (laughs) mouthfeel. The mental the... image I have is excellent. <laughs> well, I'm imagining the shark wearing a bib, so yeah, that's gonna. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and fork. yeah, a like a red lobster just... type. <laughs> yeah, he's savoring it, thinking I've just washed out my mouth with some red wine. I think that was red wine, and now I've got some really great mouthfeel from this dancing chicken. <laughs> <laughs> my compliments to the chef. Um, <laughs> but... Well, as part of this, I was doing some research into the mythological hero because I think one of the things that the film does so well is that this is, and I think you've said it before, Sarah, that we, the reason we love Jaws is not because at the end they kill a shark. It's because Brody goes on this journey and wins and um, vanquishes the beast. And it's like, and that's because also reread the book as part of this because I hadn't read it for over 30 years and oh, that's an odd experience. (laughs) My my condolences. (laughs) honestly it's like it reads like a first draft of someone who was commissioned and just completely misunderstood the brief (laughs) it's it's so the wrong way to tell the story but Mm -hmm. this though is like well he's yeah he is the ironic hero from from a mythological quest he is someone who is out of his depth he's literally out of his elements he's in the element that he hates the most everything he thought was all of the rules of the world have just been thrown into complete disarray and he's supposed to be the person that is in charge of the rules of of the world but everything that he does from his past is just useless now he's not complete and his journey is is becoming whole and so here it's kind of i thought it made sense that yeah he is an infant here he's having to go on this journey with his spiritual mum and dad and i think that hooper is much more maternal than quint um or his two dads um but the and the thing there is that it's like yeah he takes the best of both of them and he and he learns from them um 
and sorry there was another point there as well um but yeah and also the fact that in the book the town of of amity is awful i mean you would never want to live there it's <laughs> such a horrible place everyone in the book is really awful and it's a really mean-spirited yeah. book it's weird yeah. to read that story and just how mean-spirited it is it's horrible that hendrix and the first thing he says throws out a homophobic slur it's like mm -hmm. oh this is just the wrong way to tell this story whereas in the quest like yeah the mythological quest there's a treasure to be had and the treasure sometimes has a supernatural element to it so you've got the golden fleece or the holy grail or the ark of the covenant but with jaws it's it's physical but it's also the spiritual and communal concept of home and the family and of the mm -hmm. town of amity that's doomed if brody can't complete this mission and that's why yeah, it works com so beautifully. community yeah mm -hmm. absolutely it's that's why it works so beautifully because amity is a town worth saving the worst thing that happens is that the nine-year-olds are karateing the picket fences and <laughs> you really want to live there and it's like yeah this is so obviously the way the way to tell this story i just it's weird to read a version that goes in the other way and says well the shark's the hero right because yeah. everyone's horrible <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh well, and also you want to live on Amity because of the time dilation where 24 hours is like three weeks. <laughs> There's just all this time hopping uh, yeah. back and forth between uh, the, the, the days of the week and when events happen. So it's also, you know, a uniquely sci-fi town that everyone just kind of accepts in the background. I think that's because the aliens from Close Encounters had recently visited and uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. brought some people back that they'd... Yeah, they're taken away during World War Two. Um, that's how Hooper got all his money. Um, yeah, that's the, right. The Dreyfus Cinematic Universe confirmed. <laughs> yep, we've done it with Shire. We've done it with. Um, which, speaking of which, Rob, I know, and I, I, I want to. There's a couple things I want to circle back to. Well, there's one thing I want to circle back to, and there's a question I have for you, uh, Rob. We, so the first thing I want to circle back to is how good the shark looks, and this is why I said. This wouldn't be the only time I talk about Jurassic Park on the podcast because, once again, Spielberg did this twice, right? Like, he mm -hmm. he shaped special effects for decades uh, on two separate occasions in his career, which is crazy to think about. So the the, the shark obviously looks amazing in this, and, and you know, the, the idea of seeing this in the theater and, like, everyone freaking out like this movie scared people from going in the water again because of this shark you like yeah. a, a fake the shark from deep blue sea is not doing that it's nope. just not <laughs> um and even recently i just watched um the 1933 king kong for class for the first time as an adult i'd seen it as a kid mm. and that is a movie that um thematically is kind of aging like fruit but I, it, it, the spectacle of like King Kong and and the the stop motion and the reverse projection and all that, mm. it's really astounding. Like I, I kind of couldn't believe that that movie was made in 1933, and I can't imagine what a 1933 audience would think of that movie. That must have been the scariest movie ever made, maybe until Jaws. Um, <laughs> and, uh. Then you look at Jurassic Park, which kind of draws on the tradition of all of those things, right? Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. it, it 
has the animatronics that you see from Jaws, but it also there's moments in there where they use stop motion and the raptor claws. Um, yeah. And then there's like the CGI on the brontosaurus is at the beginning of the film. And that's still the best looking Jurassic, you know, franchise movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the effects look incredible in that movie now, even now. It's been almost 30 years since that came out. And yeah. uh, it's just, it's so crazy to think about how technical of a filmmaker you have to be in order to push the medium forward, maybe by about five to 10 years on two separate movies that you made. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. That's that's such a great point. The <clears throat> And the reason why is to tell a great story. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, the reason why Steven Spielberg is a genius and is one of the greats of cinema is because he didn't want to just show off what we can do now. He wanted to tell a great story. And he said, right, so to tell this story, I need to be able to put this, this, and this on screen. And obviously also work within certain areas of compromise as well i mean yeah you've talked about it before the fact that it's it's a better film because they couldn't show the shark whenever they wanted and i think that's a lesson that he then learned for jurassic park where it's like yeah i could show the dinosaurs whatever i want now because we've come so far but that's not the way to tell this story the way to tell the story is to tease it and Mm -hmm. sometimes to just show the dinosaurs in all their glory but also we have to scare the audience a bit because they're also expecting that. And that's when it's nighttime, it's raining, you get a glimpse of something, but you're not sure what you've seen. Um, Yeah, the special effects never wag the film. (laughs) He's always, (laughs) it's always at the service of it. Yeah. Um, Well, and also too, that's a good point that, you know, I think Spielberg when it comes to these creatures who are essentially mythic, right? Like this big ass shark and the the dinosaurs walking amongst people in present day or a facsimile of present day nowadays. Uh, Mm. There's, there's, there's a wonder to it that he Mm -hmm. captures really well in, in alongside with the fear. And um, I don't think you see a lot of, of creature movies really capture that as well. Um, Honestly, kind of the only ones I can think of are besides those two are the original King Kong and the original Godzilla. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Um, And it's really good that, yeah, because I, of course, Kong, again, one of the great monster movies Mm -hmm. that had groundbreaking special effects. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah, I watched that film thinking, I just, I'm still not sure how they're achieving some of this. There's that scene when Kong's reaching down to try and get the people that are hiding in a cave on a cliff face, mm-hmm. and it's the real actors, but it's an 18-inch model, and they're interacting, and it's like... And it's all done in wide shot, and it's all done during yeah. the day, so it's all very, very brightly lit. Again, it's like, it would be easier to do this at night time because we could you know, put it all in shadow, but it wouldn't be as good for the audience, so therefore we're going to make it harder on ourselves. Mm. I think oh, as like <laughs> one of the things as well is that all of these films that we're that we're talking about the sort of the the Kong and the original Godzilla and things like that like they are spoken about so much more than their sort of modern equivalents or you know the the yeah. latest ones in those franchises which are sort of spoken about for a bit and everyone's like oh yeah the you know the effects are great or whatever but like they are not 
groundbreaking they are not the most amazing thing we've ever seen they're not going to be talked about in you know 70 80 years or whatever like like some of these other films are and i think that what is so important and and what sort of particularly ties jaws and jurassic park together is that sense of awe and that sense of scale and that i think is one of the reasons why you know what we were talking about at the start which is you have very different reactions to these films when you're a child and when you're an adult because when you're a, a, a child or also us on this podcast you're like whoa that's a big shark um and the same reaction with the with the t-rex as well in in jurassic park but then you watch it when you're a little bit older and you understand that these characters are in peril that there there is danger here that this is scary that there is a very real threat because you understand or have a, a better grasp of sort of more complex human emotions than just like being blown away by the by the scale of something but the i mean i haven't seen some of the the later kind of kong films um but the people are not going to be talking about skull island in the way that they talk about the you know the yeah. 30s <laughs> king kong that's just not going to happen and i don't know if we're just kind of when we were having a sort of off mic conversation about marvel films and how they are now so so much just about like the huge scale of it all and where uh end game sort of falls apart is just in like smashing a load of cgi characters against each other and losing so much of the heart and the story and when it does come back to that it it is a lot better but there's you can't have that um connection to a film when it is just like all about like huge scale smashy smashy monsters going at it and that is fun like don't get me wrong i you know i enjoy <laughs> like a huge monsters going at it as much as the as much as the next person but why you know jaws and and not those films is because jaws is is not about being a showcase for for special effects uh, it is not about the shark, uh, which is uh, a borrowed phrase from from Mark Kermode, the film critic, who says this a lot, that Jaws is not about the shark. Uh, and people always come for him like, it's a shark film. And it's like, no, it is not about the shark. This, <laughs> this film is about these characters. <laughs> it is about the story. Like, if the story sucked, yeah. a la the book, um, then mm. it would not be, <laughs> it would not be the film that it is now. I mean, the the film the film takes all of the stuff that was you know bad about the book which was not nice characters not likable characters not an idyllic place that you would like to live and want to go on this adventure to save um and just gives you all of those things it gives you characters to root for it gives you a place that we care about and we you know have spent a lot of the film with brody but not as much time really with with quint and hooper yet in in this moment when the threat is very real and the scale of the problem is really really hitting home we care about all three of these guys we mm. are feeling that sense of peril um and it does all of that without kind of being this really you know flashy effects heavy uh moment of sort of seeing so much of this shark and seeing the shark you know gnawing at the side of the boat or you know flipping around and all the rest of it it is very very simple we see very little of the shark still um and it's just incredibly effective in giving us what we need which is that sense of peril 
um and again making us care about these characters and wanting them to succeed because we're sort of finally seeing what they're up against yeah yeah yeah. um i I think that we've not really talked about the film as a monster movie um Mm. all that much but it very much is right like Mm -hmm. obviously we're making comparisons to um kong and godzilla but you i also see a lot of um creature from the black lagoon in this where yeah. uh yeah specifically in in the 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 way the 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 costume or the animatronic looks like people talk about that but creature looks amazing to this day mm-hmm. i think that's one of the the you know iconic uh monster movie villains ever and and that suit it holds up and mm-hmm. yeah. it looks great on on screen and so does the shark like uh, and it's it's just interesting to see kind of the 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 lineage specifically almost of universal uh yeah monster movies right so kong's a universal monster creature's a universal monster and then you also have like mummy dracula invisible man um and frankenstein and then uh J- jaws is a universal monster mm-hmm. right yeah. like that's that's it's a, it's a universal monster movie that's done 30 <laughs> years after they stopped making them, basically. Um, and I think it's it's uh, uh, it's really interesting to just kind of see that, that Universal decided to lean into the horror monster stuff. And that's kind of what I would say made the studio, particularly in the 30s. Um, mm. And seeing this draw on the traditions of those previous movies and then seeing Jurassic Park was Jurassic Park also universal it was yeah yes yeah so and then seeing Jurassic Park draw on that those influences plus Jaws from the guy who made Jaws (laughs) um it's such an interesting lineage uh to to kind of watch evolve over Spielberg's career and also I would not be a good Godzilla nerd if I didn't push back a, a small-ish bit on what you said, Sarah, about none of these <laughs> uh, besides those. I think Shin Godzilla would is a oh, film that yes. we, we oh, yeah. talk about 70, 70 to 80 years from now. I take um, it back. I'm sorry. <laughs> yep. But I do think I do think that that some of the other, and this might get me in hot water with some people and maybe even the people mm-hmm. guessing on this show, I think someone who has tried to do this and has kind of failed at it has been Guillermo del Toro. I think when he's tried the kaiju thing, like I don't love Pacific Rim all that much and I don't love Shape of Water all that much. So, you know, I think he's, it it almost feels desperate from him for some reason when I watch his movies. Like it it feels, there's a cloyingness about him wanting to make one of these lasting monster movies uh that i don't get when i see stuff like shin godzilla or jurassic park or jaws there's so much great stuff you've just said there i'm just going to have to take a minute to unpack it um yes yeah, so the, well first off i think i wow yeah i think that um spielberg actually cited creature from the black lagoon as an influence on jaws and there's a, yeah, a scene sense. when the woman is uh, swimming and i think the creature's mm. looking up at her and you can mm-hmm. you can definitely see it there. But you're right, in other ways, in terms of the special effects and how they're used. It's a great point about he made a Universal monster movie. He also made it in the way that Universal monster movies are often made, in that you don't see the monster until quite a way into the movie. And 
the reason for that was censorship at the time during the 30s yeah. but it was also um it could be like a budget thing as well but yeah you couldn't show as much horror during the 30s into the 40s and 50s when um because i think the creatures came out during the 50s and yeah that's right it's um it has that lineage and also spielberg is a it's a very classical filmmaker i mean there's no slow motion mm. in jaws it's very he will use a dissolve every now and again but i think the most kind of apart from the effects i think the most kind of um cutting edge thing that he was using at the time was the split uh what's it called the splits diopter yeah yeah when you can see the extreme foreground and the background and they're both mm -hmm. in um focus yeah that's the, used... the palmer shot that's right mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's used a few times but other than that it's just wonderful shot compositions and editing and music and again that's just a tie back to those universal films that were also doing that and it just shows that you don't need to have a lot of flash and whiz bang um you just need to have a real confidence and also be a genius at like you know visually telling a story that helps but um <laughs> yeah that's what he brings to this and for Guillermo del Toro I would yeah I'm really with you on Pacific Rim that when I saw the trailer said stop stop the competition right now the best film of the year has arrived and then <laughs> watched the film at the IMAX and was like oh no it's not the best film of the year it's not even the best film I'm going to see today I don't think <laughs> <laughs> and you're right there is a certain kind of if less is more then think how much more will be mm. so let's just throw everything at the screen and it's like yeah there are some parts of this that are awesome like literally awe-inspiring, particularly on that IMAX screen. But to the at the end of the day, it was a rubbish story and with no emotional involvement, really. Yeah. Mm. I guess aren't I mean aren't people always trying to make you know the next the next Jaws and the next Jurassic Park? And I really just don't think that people should try <laughs> because these are yeah. two perfect films. Like they and not just that like not just perfect films but also the cultural impact they have had as well and how they are so just ingrained into into pop culture now that any film that even tries to sort of do it again i mean again we had a, a an, an off mic conversation about jurassic world and it just so <laughs> tries to follow the blueprint of Jurassic Park so much to the point where it is it feels like straight up parody at, at times with what it is trying to do and it just it doesn't allow itself to be its own thing it's just like let's do that thing we did before just exactly the same way again and it is not going to be as good it just isn't I, I, I don't think that you can be you know you can be inspired by these these films and and there'd be sort of like similarities but every single shark film that comes out now there is bound to be a comparison to jaws um and even like the serious or more serious shark films you know so not your sharknados and stuff like that but the shallows like everyone was saying this is the best shark film since jaws and it's like yeah. it's fine but it's like it's not jaws <laughs> Oh, it's not Jaws. No, I mean, I, I really, really like The Shallows, but... It's great, no, it's not yeah. Jaws. <laughs> because, because it's like, well, yeah, to all those points you mentioned, Jaws just was a perfect blend of so many different elements. Not all of them good. Some of them really, really bad in terms of the fact that they couldn't get the shark to work a lot of the times, the fact that mm -hmm. the ocean was just so much more punishing than they thought it was going to be to shoot on. <laughs> yeah. 
all of that is like just um, came together to achieve this one guy's vision. And yeah, that's, but I don't think that these new films are like even, they just wouldn't be able to recreate the circumstances. And right. Mm-hmm. Plus, once you've told the story, I mean, this is kind of the perfect way to tell this story. And I was looking at shark films that, that came before Jaws. And it's amazing how quickly Google knows what you're going to type when you type in shark films <laughs> B-E-F. And then it just says before Jaws. <laughs> yeah, there and is there before Jaws one... and there is after Jaws. <laughs> oh, definitely. This is, Jaws is kind of year zero for the shark films. Yeah. Um, yeah, but... <laughs> but there were three before and I think one was called White Death, made in 1936 in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has a bit of a Jaws-sounding plot in terms of there's a shark terrorising the Great Barrier Reef and they have to get it. Oh. There's another one called called The Shark Fighters with Victor Mature, made in 1956, I think it was. Which is about... <clears throat> excuse me. Which is about um, this naval mission to try and find a shark repellent to... The sailors can use if if their ship gets sunk during World War Two, So Quint could have used that. And then in 1969, there was a Burt Reynolds film called Shark. <clears throat> and the story to that sounds really similar to the story for Sorcerer, the other Roy Scheider film that's just amazing. Um, <laughs> and that's, I think, I think that Burt is a gun runner in that. And he loses his cargo and he's stuck in a Sudanese town because he has no money to get out because he wasn't paid because he lost his cargo. This woman says there's treasure on a shipwreck at the bottom of the seabed. If you get the treasure, then you can, ha- then I'll pay you a lot of money, but it's in shark infested waters. And I think the thing that those films did was that it was always in a bit of an exotic location. Whereas the brilliance okay. of Jaws is that it, it just it literally brings it home to small town America. And really during the seventies and eighties, uh, small town America was just a relatable wherever you lived. And that seemed to be the template going forwards. It is like, here's normality, and then a shark comes into it, rather than going to where the sharks are. So, shark, shark, exclamation point sounded awesome, so I googled it. (laughs) And Apparently it's not great. (laughs) Yeah, apparently it's not great. The film was re-released by Hallmark in 1975 under the title Maneater to cash in on the success of Jaws. <laughs> advertising, this is gross, advertising focused on the death of one of the stuntmen in the film. Yeah, that's oh, no. right. There was a shark man, um, sorry, there was a stuntman who was killed by a shark and <sighs> one of the producers said, well, that's brilliant, we're going to put that all over. And apparently <sighs> Sam Fuller, who was the director, and Burt Reynolds were really, really angry about that, saying you can't capitalize on someone's death making a movie. And the producer said, uh, I think you're going to watch me do that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, yes. There's another great, there's another great film as in it's one of the worst films you'll ever see, but oh my God, um, called The Last Shark that was made, and you may have even spoke about it before, made after Jaws and Jaws 2, I think it was in 1980. It was an Italian movie and was so similar to Jaws and Jaws 2 that Universal successfully sued to have it removed from theatres. Mm-hmm. And it's on Amazon Prime now. And I watched it, and it's... Well, the shark is is really bad in that film. It looks quite Wallace and Gromit at some points, because it's kind of <laughs> plasticine. And, um, 
But there's a scene when the shark charges. <laughs> That's it. Sorry, it's just up on, on the Discord. I love his face. It's so good. A, the shark charges a speedboat and that guy is standing on it and when it hits the speedboat he fires up in the air like a rocket and it is the most amazing moment <laughs> other than in Jaws of any shark film ever because it is so ridiculous. I had to mm-hmm. go back and watch it again in the game when I was watching it. But yeah, that's that's that film that's rubbish. <laughs> it's so chonky. <laughs> chonky boy. Oh my god. Whoa. This is... Yeah, I don't... This is so similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of... Uh, I mean, it really was just... Uh, because the Italian film industry would always do that. If if there was a successful genre, they would go and make a lot of those movies. So yeah. when Dawn of the Dead was really big in the late 70s, there suddenly was a slew of zombie movies coming out of Italy. Yeah. All of which um, owed a debt. And some of them were actually very, very good, but... Uh, Yes, they will always follow the genre that was doing really, really well. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> I am obsessed with that shark from, from that it's still. So good. <laughs> Sorry, it's MJ. So good. <laughs> uh, well, so Rob, I wanted to talk about, and we'll probably bring it in for a landing on this. <laughs> you mainlined Roy Scheider films in the lead up to your uh, appearance <laughs> on this show and i think we would be remiss not to one acknowledge that or and two uh kind of talk about your experience with them um about because we've always suggested that i think roy scheider is maybe one of the most underrated performers in hollywood history mm-hmm. um even though he was in these sort of like kind of big name films i don't yeah. think he's ever really gotten the due that he deserves or even the respect that he deserves is one of the 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 great actors and he seems like I think if you look at Roy Scheider, you kind of feel like you know him as far as a performer goes. Like you kind of feel like he might have a limited range and he would be kind of a one note. I mean, sorry, buddy, but almost the Liam Neeson type would be now (laughs) um, where you're like, oh, I know exactly what kind of films he this Mm. person makes but then if you look at the films he's in they're so different um you know even the ones that feel like they could be the liam neeson actioners like sorcerer that movie's very human and very like grounded and uh that that's where a lot of the stress comes from so what did you see in your kind of shider thon that that you watched leading up to uh coming on the show well, that's a great question. Could I be a real pain and just talk about a couple of other Jaws things before I answer that at yeah. one time? <laughs> one of the things I really wanted to say, because I love this clip so much, and it has one of my favourite shots, and it's not a flashy shot, but it's really, really clever. Because, and I don't want to risk angering Sarah, but arguably, Brody in what he's doing in this scene is not the most important character. <laughs> because... <laughs> The others <laughs> are much, are much, yeah. <laughs> the others are much more equipped, and they're also giving the audience the information. And there is this amazing shot, and I've always loved it, of um, when Hooper says that's a twenty-footer, and he's up on the bridge, and the camera's looking at him, and then the camera drops down to a two-shot of Brody and Quint, and it's Quint who says twenty-five, three tons of him, mm-hmm. 
and Brody is on the left and Quince on the right. And I think the reason that Brody is is on the left is to keep him in the middle between the two, so that you, so that you're looking at him, because it will be very easy not to look at Brody in some of these shots because all the information is coming from Hooper and Quint and they're the ones that are moving more. But Spielberg knows, no, this is, this is the character of Brody. This is his story. And he is literally between these two guys um, in terms of his ability. Well, no, actually, in, in terms of his character. Mm. Um, and I'd always think that's just such a clever way to show that and to subliminally keep him in the audience's mind just by putting him there. If he was on the right of the screen and it was Quint talking, I don't think you'd look at Brody. But, uh, yeah, I just think that's such a, a wonderful example of, like, you don't need a lot of flash and bang to tell a visually compelling story and something very quiet but clever is happening there. Mm. Um, so thanks for indulging me on that, because I just <laughs> love that shot so much. And actually, that just goes into one other thing. Actually, no, there's two things, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. Yeah, no, there's always more sorry. when it comes to fast. Sorry. It's like... You would never guess that I really, really look forward to coming on to LJ Fam and like, <laughs> like a big shopping list of things saying, what else did I want to talk about? It's yeah. like, less is more, Rob, less is more. Um, but there's another point that I was like thinking, oh, I'm going to be very clever and get into psychoanalysis. And then I listened to to you guys talking about Quint's thrusting rod, casting <laughs> silver lines into the water and thought, oh, they've, they've got to beat me to it. But I love that because I never actually picked up on that. It's like, oh, yeah, there is... Again, it's talking about the the types of um, machismo and things like that. And that's, I think, yeah, really is what's going on in in that moment. But uh, yeah, I just never picked up on it, which is surprising because I have a filthy mind. But anyway, <laughs> um, the, uh, the phrase thrusting rod just, re- just really got me there. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. And... <laughs> And of course, the ocean is where all life comes from. So there's an Oedipal thing there as well, because he's, he's casting it into the ocean. Anyway, um, but I think that these three these three characters are like kind of, you know, Quint is the id, and Brode is the ego, and Hooper is the superego. He's, you know, the supreme intellect. And, um, and Brody needs to take, you could argue, the bravery from Quint and the intelligence from Hooper and combine them at the end to defeat the shark and all the characters are represented when Brode is there because it's Hooper's air canister and it's Quint's gun mm. and it's Brode's marksmanship that yeah, presumably he learnt at the police academy so yeah everything comes together in such a wonderful way including the music because this piece of music gets repeated at the end along with the Jaws theme mm-hmm. and oh it's just so wonderful <laughs> and the final thing sorry the final thing <laughs> is you guys are so lucky that um, I I would imagine that when you came to Jaws, seeing it in widescreen was something you could very easily do. Mm. Because because during the 80s, because Jaws didn't have the best reputation during the 80s. And it's interesting when you go back and read those original reviews and also old movie books, that Jaws was kind of given short shrift in some ways and... Yeah, the editing was praised, but Spielberg was often yeah, dismissed, which is, it's just, it's just weird to read it now. But I think the Jaws was kind of cheapened during the 80s, won by the sequels, which yeah, Jaws 2 is good enough, 
but Jaws 3 and 4 are pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fact that you couldn't see just how well the movie was made because you were watching a pan and scan version. So you were getting 60% of the image and missing 40%, which is why I could never understand why everyone said that the Ben Gardner scene was so scary because it's like, well, in the version I watched, you just saw the hole. So it was obvious that something was going to come out of it. <laughs> and then when I saw it in widescreen, I was waiting for the camera to cut or for the shot to cut into the hole. But it didn't, of course, because there is no cut there. So I was just watching Hooper and the head comes out and I jump. And it's like, oh, now I understand why it's one of the great scares of cinema. <laughs> but the, but it was in the 90s when it was released to buy on VHS and Laserdisc. And you saw uh, the whole image that I just remember reading a lot of filmmaker interviews like um, Robert Rodriguez said, Everything you need to know about making a film is in Jaws. No film about a man versus a fish should be as good as this. And there seemed to be like a rehabilitation because people could see that actually this is one of the best films ever made. And it's just one of the best constructed films ever made. And just look at what he's doing with the camera and with the shot composition. And yeah, and and I think it's also one of those things that a lot of the kids who grew up on Jaws by the mid 90s were becoming film critics and was slapping five-star reviews onto this. And along with another Universal film, The Thing, which I think also went through like mm. a rehabilitation mm-hmm. in, in the mid-90s of actually this is one of the great movies. So, yeah, the, it's, it was rough watching the pan and scan version of Jaws <laughs> when I learned about pan and scan in my teens because it's like, I can just see how wonderful that shot should look and I'm not seeing half of it. So, yes, anyway. Thanks for indulging me on that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> There's always more Jaws to talk about, but uh, yeah. Yes. Tell, tell us about Scheiderfest, the, the Scheiderfest yes. that you had in the lead up to. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Um, aye, aye, aye. So yeah, it was one of those things where, it was actually because of you guys, I was listening to an episode where you were talking about Sorcerer and how wonderful Sorcerer is. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I haven't seen Sorcerer for a, you know, for a couple of years now and I love it so I thought well this is a perfect time to watch Jaws and then watch Sorcerer and yeah Sorcerer is one of those films that it was a massive flop it was the complete opposite to Jaws but okay. it's really really similar in terms of it's a story it's it's elemental it's it's man versus the elements yeah. it was all done for real um you can see how hard it was to make and also there's this weird story point that they need to get the dynamite and bring it back to blow up the well to close it off and stop the fire to save the town that the Roy Scheider character is living in because that's where everyone works so he's kind of even though he's obviously doing it for himself because he wants the money to get out he's also doing it for the same reason as in Jaws to save Mm. the town Mm -hmm. and it's like oh that's a weird Mm. bit of crossover and then that just set me off on yeah this Roy scheider because it was um (laughs) I thought he is, to your point, um, MJ is like, you. it's easy to overlook what a great actor he was and how versatile he was. And I watched The French Connection and he has a supporting role in that. And I think, um, and then I watched a film called called The Seven Ups, which is kind of a unofficial follow on from The French Connection. Um, And yeah, what he brought to these films was it was a toughness that was tempered by 
a humanity. But one of the things you don't really get in Jaws is uh, the toughness. He is a tough screen presence, but there's always like a vulnerability there to him. And I think that's, he could easily have just been a bruiser and mm -hmm. he could easily have just done far you know, less interesting roles. But I think because he was willing to show the vulnerability, um, that's what then led him into you know, much more interesting roles. And then you get things like Marathon Man, which made me laugh out loud when I was walking down the street when you described him as a snack in that Sarah. <laughs> when, when he, there he is. Sarah's <laughs> just put the image on of... You I had mean, that too ready to go. Yeah. I sure did. <laughs> There's a scene when he's working out and um, yeah, and Sarah just put the image up and he is... 5% body fat tops. <laughs> yeah. Like, look at that. Legit <laughs> snack. <laughs> I have it ready I to go at, at think... all times. <laughs> uh, I can see why. I mean, I do look at that thinking, am I even the same species as that? Right? <laughs> he just doesn't look like me. Yeah. I, I also, he's out. in that movie for <laughs> 10 minutes, maybe, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. If that. The, yeah. Well, that's the thing is that, but also in the film, yeah, he is, again, a real supporting character, but his presence is felt a lot because he has great screen presence, but it also, just the versatility. He, in this film, is a kind of like a CIA operative who's very, very cultured and comes from a very well-to-do family. And again, that just shows his range because he completely sells it. He sells it as a guy who likes the finer things in life, who always knows what's the the right wine to order with which food. So he's kind of like Hooper, but evil because he's working for the CIA and um, <laughs> and he's working with Nazi war criminals. But um, but yeah, it's like just watching the films, I just thought it's such a versatile actor and it was such a shame that, that in the 80s, the roles kind of dried up and he was yeah. doing things that went straight to video in this country, like 52 Pickup. I mean, there's a very good film called Cohen and Tate where he plays a hitman and it could almost be a stage play. It's... It's him and I think Adam Baldwin. They have to take this kid, who's who's witnessed a mob murder, and they and they kidnap him, and they're going to take him to the mob boss, and they're going to kill the kid, and they have to decide whether they're going to do it or not. It's a really good film, but it's a very mm. small film. And he was in, he was headlining blockbusters during the seventies, and in the eighties, the roles kind of dried up, and then by the nineties, it was like he wasn't really in anything. I mean, he was in. I think Naked Lunch, the David Cronenberg film, yes. was really surprising yeah. to see. Him he in was that. on TV in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, in Sequest. Uh, Sequest was it? Was that the one? Yeah. Yep. Um, but all of it built up to a film that I thought <clears throat> I should watch this movie, even though it's going to be a big plate of cinematic greens, which is all that jazz. <laughs> what a film! <laughs> cinematic <Bob Fosse> greens. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought going to be a big steaming plate of cinematic greens, all that jazz, um, which is the Bob Fosse film when it's yep. um, autobiographical about him. About, and it's around the time that he was making the film Lenny and also, um, I think, putting Chicago on stage. Yeah, I think. And, right. and it's all changed for the film, but it's, it's very obviously based on that. And yeah, Roy Scheider plays this dance choreographer who's like a womanizer and he's very flawed, but there's something about him that he's obviously brilliant, but he's flawed. And 
I just thought, again, this is so... Well, when the film was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be a real chore to watch, and actually I, I was surprised at how well I got on with it. But a lot of that is to do with him. And again, he completely sells the process of being an artist. And I often respond quite badly to to films about creators being creative. I never <laughs> think it really gets it right. Um, but this one was like, yeah, this is this shows the ego, but also the brilliance and also the self-destructiveness. And yeah, the music's good and the and the dance sequences are good, but at the at the centre of it is Roy Scheider and just being so versatile and completely selling the fact that he is one of the greats of theatre. It's mm -hmm. like, well, two years earlier, he was driving a truck in South America trying yeah. not to blow up. And then <laughs> two years before that, he was fighting a big shark. So. <laughs> and I never think of them the same way that yeah, Arnie plays Arnie in mm -hmm. all of his films. Absolutely. They are completely different characters. What a man. What a great actor. Mm -hmm. And as you said, yeah, kind of overlooked, which is a real shame. But... This is why we have this you know, wonderful podcast where we can sing his praises and get people to watch these movies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I messaged our group chat when you said you were going to watch all that jazz. It's a, it's a film I didn't really like except for his performance. I love his performance in that, that movie. And it, it carries over some of the weaker stuff for me, not all of it because I don't necessarily fall on the liking it that much. Um, <laughs> but I, I can't say a bad word about him in that in all that jazz. He's incredible in that movie. Um, I just think it gets a little self-indulgent in the back half, but uh, yeah, um, this is an all oh, that it does, jazz. Definitely. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, it, once you know where it's headed, you're like, all right, I get it. Mm -hmm. yeah, there, is, there is that the ending. Well, the ending is incredibly self-indulgent. I watched yeah. for the ending, but the ending is so indulgent that they actually ran out of money and had to go to another studio to pay for that. So that's why <laughs> it's released through Fox and Columbia, because Columbia said we're going to give you no more money for this. So they so they went to Fox to get money to shoot the indulgent big ending, which I kind of admire as yeah you know, some filmmaking as well. But, sure. Yeah. It just it goes on so long. <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> when I was. Quite, because I always assumed it was going to be at least a two and a half hour movie. And it comes mm. in, I think, at an hour 58. Mm. And I have to admit, I stopped it to make a cup of tea at one point And it had been on for 64 minutes. And I thought, oh, I thought we were a bit a bit further in than halfway. Because we've <laughs> had a lot of movie. But then, to be honest, I was yeah surprised at how well I got on with it. And how not a chore it was to watch. Um, obviously, you know it doesn't flow by as well as Jaws because <laughs> Jaws is the second best film ever made. <laughs> I will say uh, All That Jazz is Owen Wilson's favourite movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deep cut. <laughs> yeah, I'm not entirely sure I get that. What is his... <laughs> That's his catchphrase. That's what Owen Wilson says in all of his movies. Oh, wow. Oh, right, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was just going to lower Sorry, the yeah. tone again. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> that's not lowering the tone. That's like, that's like looking at the face of God, that is. Um, <laughs> the, the butt of God. <laughs> Roy Scheider doing some push-ups with, yes, 
buns you could scrub laundry on. (laughs) Sorry. Buns you could scrub laundry on. Well. I'm I'm adopting that one. Buns you could scrub laundry on. I'm adopting that one. We usually say buns you could bounce a quarter off of, but I like scrub laundry on a lot better. (laughs) Yeah, I'm now very distracted by our Discord thread. I'm very sorry, everyone. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did a lot. We did a lot of work in Discord today. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just knew I'd bring it down to my level. I was hoping I'd be elevated, but uh, I'm Absolutely sorry, guys. Not. I've just pulled you down into the murky depths. <laughs> um, well, Rob, thank you so much for being on and talking about Jaws and Roy Schneider and Universal monster movies and uh, Pacific Rim. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, what a jawsome experience this has been. Hey. <laughs> I just really wanted to alienate the listeners one more time. <laughs> uh, which I, I guess, I guess Guillermo del Toro does make his movies at Universal. I just realized that. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. That's right. Anyway, wow. Uh, <laughs> Also, my apologies to Guillermo del Toro. I feel like I was a little hard on him. I feel like he's a brilliant man who knows a lot about cinema history, but he also makes movies that uh, I feel like if if I tried to make a movie, it would come out basically like a Guillermo del Toro movie, and I don't like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to see a movie I, I would make. I do. I really, Having listened to you guys talk, you guys have got to write a story, right? you got to write a script and and get it made. Oh my god! <laughs> so that's I a challenge for after you've done this, yeah. After you've I, uh, finished the run of this, then you need to, uh, mm-hmm. to write that script. I am in this. I have to for my degree. I have to take this screenwriting class, and it is the most intimidated by any class I have ever taken. I've done a lot of writing in my time, but it's both mostly been analytical or like film criticism um, type stuff. Like I've done almost no creative writing in my lifetime. Uh, unless you count like which i guess does count but like playing like dungeons and dragons with people and helping move that story along but that's guided by someone who's not me um so the idea of staring at a blank page and having to and i have to write a feature length script for this class and i am terrified of it (laughs) so what's the end result of this will you try to put it out there to see if you can get a commission off the back of it or um is it kind of an exercise that you're doing for yourself it's part of the class it, yeah it's part of the class so it, the idea is to just kind of get us into the idea of what it's like to to write something um i think because it's it's part of a film and media studies uh program so it's not necessarily about wanting people it the, the program isn't necessarily people who want to go into production they have a separate production class or, or set of classes degree sorry program gosh uh for uh for that part of filmmaking so this is a lot of people who want to analyze so i think the idea is to sort of make us put our money where our mouth is a little bit you know um where it's like all right if you're going to be talking about this stuff and analyzing it from a critical eye we're going to make you do at least something related to the actual making of of it and so this first i'm in a class called screenwriting one right now and screenwriting one is to get us the premise and the first handful of pages and then if we so choose we can voluntarily take screenwriting two, where we will actually finish our screenplays and i don't know where it goes from there after screenwriting two if they want to take it 
and have the film production like they take the best scripts out of that screenwriting two class and have the film production program kind of make those Mm. or what um i'm i'm not entirely sure although i will say i do have my premise and i really like it and if i like it enough i might it's it's an it's inspired by my favorite musical artist of all time, though it is not a musical. Um, I am planning on sending it to his management if I like it enough. So, Ooh. oh wow, well, I'm not going to ask anything else because, of, yeah, I don't <laughs> think that people should talk about something while they're creating it. But Rob, did you have anything you wanted to plug? Oh yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I I do um, a podcast called the Movie Robcast. Um, I co-host it with Rob Wallace, who I believe was on an earlier episode mm-hmm. of LJ Fam. Mm-hmm. And if you want to listen to that, yes, it's it's available wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at Movie Robcast. Thank you very much. Yep, Sarah, did you have anything you wanted to plug? Um, I don't have any other podcasts at the moment, but I I mentioned actually that I I about the Jaws and Jurassic Park as a double bill. Um, so a while ago now for the the website, The Daily Jaws, um, I wrote a piece on uh, why they make such a good double bill. Um, and they shared that around recently, I think when it was like Sam Neill's birthday or something, they they um, they shared that on their site. So um, yeah, I had a lot of fun writing that. It was, it was a while ago, but that uh, ties in nicely to this episode. I think if people want to read about why they make such a good uh, double bill you can go and check out one of the many things that i've written about <laughs> jaws um yeah we can we can, maybe i'll uh, i'll tweet out a link to it or something or you can just look on the daily jaws and you should find it there yeah uh i will plug my own writing as well um i haven't done a lot of writing for websites over the last handful of years but for this uh film studies program i'm in i have written almost exclusively about monster movies and i feel like that is uh that is something that uh would maybe interest people so if you would like to this is really weird to put out but if you would like to read my extremely academic you know pretty dry um research papers on both jaws and the original godzilla from 1954 uh dm me and i can i can send you the link uh but i think it would be relevant to this episode specifically Mm. um the Jaws, the Jaws one is about uh, the masculinity stuff mainly, nice. um, and then the the Godzilla one is about uh, seven pages. I don't remember what the Godzilla one's about. <laughs> is it about? It's about the monster as metaphor. Uh, it might be. Oh, it's about the birth of kaiju movies. Nice. Ooh. Yep. Well, I'm going to jump in right now and say, could you pop those through to me? Because I really <laughs> would like to read them. Yes, I will. Um, there's not a lot of... Uh, so, uh, man, sorry to make my plug kind of a little waxing poetic about this stuff. There's not a lot of good academic writing about these types of monster movies. Mm. And so I have took the opportunity to kind of fill that void that I saw, which made it really fucking hard to find sources. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it did... Uh, I don't know. I think monster movies are really important and I'm actually really looking forward to as we start dealing with the shark more and as we get into spooky times, uh, talking more about those influences on this film because I think that's 
they're deeply intertwined. So um, watch more monster movies too. This uh, mm-hmm. is one of my plugs. On that point, even though there's not a lot of writing about it, that means that you've discovered something very rare, something in cinema that hasn't been done to death. So therefore <laughs> you can blaze the trail about it in terms of the you know, proper analysis of it. Yeah, that's kind of been my approach with all the papers I've written. Um, the other one I did was about exploitation movies, specifically the film Dolomite, and then this film <laughs> no wow. one's ever heard of called CC and Company that stars Joe Namath. And the only reason I heard about it is because the trailer is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And when I saw the film <laughs> at the New Beverly, they showed the trailer for CC and Company before the movie. And I was like, what is it about this Joe Namath movie with this shitty trailer? Like, literally, the the print looked like garbage. Like, it was not, it's not a well-remembered movie. But in 2019, we got that movie brought back into the public consciousness by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we also got Dolomite brought back into the public consciousness by Dolomite is My Name from Netflix. And so I kind of did a paper about, like, why that was the case with those two movies and what i found was really kind of interesting hmm. um so i have that paper too if you want to read that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it'd be great oh, oh uh rob where can people find you uh, did you plug your social media oh yes i could do that as well um <laughs> yes if you want to find me on twitter i'm at rob underscore a underscore daniel because i didn't quite understand how twitter works when i was creating my name but yes you can find me there <laughs> great uh you can find us at jaws for a minute on uh twitter um and in our bio you find a link tree that has all the ways you can support the show um you can buy some merch through t public and Redbubble. i think there was a big sale on t public not too long ago mm-hmm. um also holiday season's coming up so Grab your LJ fan merch for unsuspecting people in your life <laughs> or send that link out to people you want to buy you LJ fan merch for, uh, for the holiday. Um, and uh, you can also support us by donating to our coffee page, uh, which is once again, link in bio. Um, that's just a $3 minimum. We, do we have another donation goal uh, set up already, Sarah? Yes. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but we've set a new goal. So new contest up and running. Great. Um, And once again, if you have donated in the past and you are not a previous winner, you are entered into the drawing um, so far. So as soon as we hit that next goal, we will draw a new winner and you can win a piece of merch. There's a $3 minimum donation on there. So you could potentially donate $3 and win a, you know, $20 t-shirt. So uh, I think the the risk reward there is, seems pretty good. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, uh, our logo was made by Alex, which is at Hex Ghosts on Twitter. Is that the correct handle now? It absolutely is, yeah. <laughs> okay. At Hex Ghosts on Twitter, um, you can follow him for his his art. Our theme song was done by Kristen Falls. You can find her at Kristen Falls Music on Instagram, and there's a link in her bio to buy the full song uh, because it slaps. Um, <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us and you're not on social media, you can email us at minute at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow uh, myself and Sarah individually, you can follow Sarah at Sarah Buttery, S-A-R-A-H-B-U-D-D-E-R-Y on Twitter. You can follow me at MJSmith891 on Twitter as well. Um, thank you guys so much for supporting the show. Uh, give us a like, give us a listen, give us a, a rating and a review on your podcatcher of choice and tell people about the show. That's the only way 
that we we can continue to grow our audience. Uh, well, one of the only ways, um, <laughs> but it's it's the main way. It's 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 you guys supporting us and and um, sharing it on social media and telling people about it. And we thank you so much for doing that. Um, and until next time, it's Jaws o'clock somewhere.